This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Performance to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. These seminars are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, located right in the heart of the theatre, 42nd Street, where Broadway, Off-Broadway, and Off-Off-Broadway meet to create that magic of theatre. The American Theatre Wing created the Tony Awards, but it is much more than that. The American Theatre Wing is the longest ongoing organization, nonprofit organization, devoted to service in the community through the theatre. It started a long time ago, First World War, went on to the Second World War, where we created the famous stage door canteens, which were in every city across the country, as well as Paris and in London. And these seminars are part of an outgrowth of the Wing School where after the Second World War, returning veterans came to the school and they relearned their trade. And everyone in the theater contributed their services to that school. And that pretty much is what we're doing today here. <coughs> we continue to have these seminars. We continue to ask people in the theater to share their knowledge with each other and with other in the theater as well. So that passed on this tradition of theater goes on. We are also doing what we did many, many, many years ago. We are still going to hospitals. We are bringing live professional theater to hospitals and institutions. Our Saturday Theater for Children program is a most important one, where we bring again live theater on Saturday mornings. We are creating, we hope, that wonderful instinct of how marvelous it is to go to the theater, a habit that we believe will last them a lifetime. I'm going to go on with the seminar, which is on performance today. And it's a, a wonderful array of talent, as it always is. But today is especially an exciting one. I'm going to introduce our co-moderators, Jean Dalrymple, who is an author, a director, a playwright, and a member of the board of the American Theatre Wing. And Ed Wilson, who is theatre critic for the Wall Street Journal, but today he's not a critic, I'm a hasten to say. And he is director of the Center for Advanced Studies in Theater Arts at the Graduate School of the City University of New York. I'm Isabel Stevenson, and I'm president of the American Theater Wing, and I welcome you all for being here.
Thank you, Isabel. Uh, I'll begin by introducing the gentleman on my far right. He won the Laurence Olivier Award in Great Britain for his performance in The Phantom of the Opera. Prior to that, he had won an Olivier Award for being in Barnum in London. He's starred in too many films to mention, but I will just mention two or three. Hello, Dolly. A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. The Knack. He's been, again, in too many television shows to enumerate in Great Britain. Uh, but for one, some mothers do have them. Have I pronounced that correctly? Mm -hmm. Some mothers do have them. Uh, he won every award in sight. He was last in New York in 1967 in Peter Schaffer's black comedy, and we're indeed happy to welcome him back as the star of the Phantom of the Opera, Michael Crawford. Next to Michael is the co-star of M. Butterfly, that intriguing, fascinating play. Uh, he has appeared in innumerable television shows, Black's Magic, Simon and Simon, Hard Copy, have I got those, uh, those yeah. correct? He was in the film of The Karate Kid Part Two. Uh, he also was in the first exclusively Asian-American company of the chorus line, Mr. B.D. Wong. And next to B.D., uh, a lady who for two days a week is the heroine of the Phantom of the Opera. She has been in a number of musicals in New York. She was nominated for a Tony for her appearance in Drood, which used to be called The Mystery of Edwin Drood and is now called Drood. She's been in Big River, Lobo M., a number of other shows. And in 1986, she won the Clarence Derwent Award as the Best Actress of the Year, Miss Patty Cohenauer. Right now, I'm honored to introduce the people on my left. And beginning way down there is Erica Spellman, who was here in place of Sam Cohn. He sent her, and a very good choice she is, too. She's uh, been with ICM, the great uh, management company, for over a year. And before that, she was with William Morris. And she handles mostly playwrights and uh, directors. But uh, at the present time, she has Ron Silva going in to Speed the Plow, a new play that will open very soon. Erica Spellman. <laughs> you know, every once in a while, you read or you know that someone we never heard of before suddenly becomes a star. And it's unbelievable. We have three right here. <laughs> <laughs> Blythe Dana, we never had heard the name before, really. And she opened in Butterflies Are Free, and zing, she was a star. She's been a star ever since. And that's a long time ago. <laughs> and she's been... <laughs> Wait, let me tell you, she's now starring in Streetcar Named Desire, and she's perfectly wonderful. I must say right now that I wept when you did the uh, monologue about your husband. Just wonderful. Blythe Dana. <laughs> and then we have Judy Kay, who was an understudy in, on the 20th century. 
And uh, we all knew her name. She'd been around, and she was awfully good. But she went in and became the star, and Judy Kaye has been a star ever since. And, of course, now she's in the Phantom with all these other great people. And, uh, and she's perfectly adorable. <laughs> and John Lithgow, well, you know, I had heard, <laughs> I had heard a little bit about him. And then he opened in the changing room. And he's been on everybody's mind and lips ever since. Uh, right now, he's in Monsieur Butterfly, and he is perfectly divine. But before that, uh, I have to, you know, we'll give them their, their credits, although I'm always more interested in just talking about what I know about them. <laughs> yeah, he was in the front page, Requiem for a Heavyweight, of course, The Changing Room. And uh, his one-man show, Kaufman at Large, which I didn't see, but I'm very eager to see. John Lithgow. <laughs> I asked him how he began. Uh, as Isabel said, today we're talking about performance and about the craft and the art of acting. And we have some marvelous uh, performers with us today to share their experiences with us. And to start things off, uh, John, you and B.D., your co-star in M. Butterfly, have something in common in that in the world according to Garp, the film, you played a woman, a man, uh, actually a professional football player who became a woman. And uh, B.D. plays the part of a woman, uh, a Chinese opera star in M. Butterfly. And I would like to start off by asking you, in terms of the experience in Garp, uh, when you first heard about this, when you were first approached about it, and then as you prepared for it, uh, and then actually played the part, what was it like? What was the experience like for you? Was that a first for you to begin with? Uh, playing a woman? Yes. Uh, I had played uh, a girl tied to the railroad tracks <laughs> uh, in, in Boy Scout camp when I was about eight. But beyond that, I'd never played a woman, no. And but, also, you know, he's playing a woman now at the end of the show. Well, I would say um, I, I was dying to play the part. I had read the novel of Garp and remembered the character very, very vividly. And this was Roberta, all, is yeah, that? Roberta Muldoon, and this was all about three or four years later. And uh, I auditioned for it and was hired eight months later. I mean, it took them that long to decide. Uh, George Roy Hill thought I was too tall. I always thought I would be the perfect Roberta Muldoon. And I, tr I tried to persuade him of that, but it, he, he wasn't too receptive for a while. Preparations for it, mostly, I didn't, I had done a lot of unwitting research. I was very interested in this uh, transsexual woman, Jan Morris, years before. Just, I found her a very captivating woman. She, there was a moment when she wrote an autobiography and did book tours and book interviews. And I remember just being fascinated by, by uh, all that she had to say. And I'd read the book, uh, never dreaming that I would play a transsexual years on down the line. I think my fascination with Jan Morris is typical of people's fascination with the entire issue of uh, not only cross-dressing, but sex change and sexuality in general. The, the, deepest mystery there is, is what is the other sex like? 
and what do they like and what are they like. Um, that's part of why I wanted to play the part so much. And in terms of preparing for it, uh, I would say hours and hours of costume fittings with Ann Roth were the biggest preparation I did. Uh, it was a transsexual, m not a transvestite. Uh, a transsexual, I believe, is a, a much... <laughs> when a transsexual becomes a woman, I don't believe she changes as much from when she was a man as a transvestite does as soon as he dresses up. I didn't ever feel that this should be a highly acted role. I thought it should be a very low profile kind of calm and ordinary person and just let the extraordinary fact of my size and presence and the difference between me and the other characters take care of the kind of comedy, uh, the uh, eccentricity. And the bizarre You became impact. very maternal in it, though. Very maternal, a very kind person, kind of compassionate, but not artificial. In fact, more genuine than any other part that I've ever played. Uh, and, and as such, preparation for it, you know, uh, assuming a whole bunch of mannerisms, that was less an issue than it usually is, which is a paradox, because mm -hmm. God knows it's the most unusual part I've ever played. Sure. Why don't you ask B.D. about his, uh, <laughs> his experience? Now, I want to ask B.D. what B.D. stands for. B.D. stands for Bradley Darrell. Oh. <laughs> um, well, when did you, did you ever do a woman's part before? No, Were I you haven't. interested in doing it, or did you ever feel like doing it personally? No, no, I, can't, no I can't say that I had. Um, I don't, I'm not sure if I would on television if I did. <laughs> uh, I basically, the way that my role in M. Butterfly relates to John's in Garp is really only that uh, f f uh, initial idea of a man playing a woman. That's really the, where the similarities in the two roles end. Um, I just had read the part, and, like John had read Garp, and, and uh, just knew that I really had to do it because it had just such um, uh, a spectrum of, of colors and, and uh, challenges that I had never seen before. But uh, <coughs> so, uh, and to answer your question, no, I haven't. But uh, I guess I <laughs> well, kind of went off on a tangent. But you did a lot of work. I mean, you've gotten into that Chinese. The 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 outfits, the kimonos, and the gestures, and so forth. You really have gotten yeah, that. Yeah, that is where it's a different kind oh, yes. of ball game. It's very stylized. It's very stylized. It's very, I was very movement, movement and mannerism conscious. And I did train for two weeks uh, uh, before we began rehearsals to learn the Peking opera style. And um, I did spend a lot of time in rehearsal costumes and, and uh, working out the way, just the technical way that she moved and sounded. So, you know, that was a, a big burden as far as, and because it was a play and not a, and not a, a more intimate style of acting, it was a much more of a challenge. The martial arts bit that you do is very uh, beautiful and very difficult, wasn't it, to learn? Yeah, that was probably the greatest physical challenge in the, <laughs> in the role. Um, they trained me quite rigorously for two weeks prior to the four-week rehearsal where we still continue to right. work. And uh, this, the Peking opera style itself is very specific mm -hmm. and very uh, 
perfect. It's a real perfect kind of art form. And so this man from China who was trained in Peking Opera for, since he was 10 years old, uh, really, you know, was very specific about trying to make me look as authentic as a Peking Opera as he, a star or a performer as he could. And so everything was, you know, everything was specifically, they really uh, were very uh, perfectionistic about that. Well, that's the way it process. turns out. Very that's perfect good. looking, yes, marvelous. Speaking of uh, special training and special work that you had to do, because actors, I think, have to do that for specific roles frequently. And Michael, as I recall reading, I think, that when you found yourself going into Barnum, uh, that you actually went to circus school or acro... Didn't you train for, a, I mean, a very rigorous training period? Yes, I did. I was listening very enviously to B.D. saying that uh, he did two weeks training. I thought, <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a dream. I, I spent four months uh, with the Big Apple Circus School, which is... Um, a sort of, it's, it's the peak, equivalent of the Pekin torture chamber, <laughs> uh, <laughs> where they have wires and, and ropes that you hang from and uh, things that you swing from and one-wheel bicycles that you put between your legs at 10 o'clock in the morning <laughs> and, by, <laughs> and your life is ruined for three months thereafter. <laughs> Yes, I was told after two lessons on the uh, unicycle that um, this can um, bring on impotency. Um, but I still pursued it, and uh, <laughs> I won't follow that. Uh, but it's, uh, it, it was, a, it was a, quite a hard task. But I felt, as with everything I seem to get involved with, I like to become very involved so that it's as as authentic as it can possibly be and to make your audience believe that at least I wasn't a fully trained circus performer but um, by <laughs> a matter of 25 years I would think but I was uh, at least someone who had and understood the enthusiasm of a circus performer which is something that is unlike anything that really? any of us know about it's it's I mean the, a dancer's life is the hardest life I, I, I've witnessed in our profession but a circus life is, is, is harder than that. And uh, it, it was, it was it, they were very welcoming, which I, I didn't think they would be, because you, you are really supposed to start at the age of about uh, three or four. <laughs> and uh, all these three and four-year-olds juggling five balls. And uh, I was having enough trouble holding two. And, uh, <laughs> and there were th th then they were swinging from trapezes and, and, and doing somersaults and things. Which, uh, but they were all trying to help this uncle that had arrived. <laughs> but, but then it turned out to be a triumph in, in London. I mean, it paid off because... Uh, yes, we ran for four years in London, which uh, is quite phenomenal because Barnum really wasn't known in England nearly as much as he was here uh, and is known here. So we added a few tricks as well because I thought it's, it's like that thing, why waste something when you've spent four months learning to <laughs> go 35 miles an hour around in circles on a rope with one hand. Uh, I'm going to use that, <laughs> whatever happens. And thankfully I have rather large feet so my trousers did in fact stay on every night otherwise they'd have ended up in the mezzanine the speed I was going. <laughs> um, but it was, it, it, it was fun. Yes. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to ask Judy if she had special training to, to do your role of Carlotta. Well, 
Yes. That's, that's uh, difficult. It was, it was interesting because it's, it's a part of my training that I never really thought I was ever going to use. <laughs> because when I was a student at UCLA, I was really interested in theater. I was in a, in a conservatory program there, but I was also playing around in the music department and initially somehow got myself into the opera workshop, um, which was a shock. And they had me singing very, very high. Uh, before that, I had been singing very, very low when anybody <laughs> wanted to hear me. I was singing tenor in high school, and then they <laughs> shot me right up to the top of my voice. I thought, this is very bizarre. But when, after my freshman year, I thought, well, that's fine. Okay, I won't do that anymore. And I went back to singing in places where I was quite comfortable. And then in the last couple of years, suddenly, um, they've been sort of knocking on my door and saying, well, time to come back to the opera. And then, but I never thought on Broadway it was going to come up, because who thinks of singing E Naturals eight performances a week? It's just... It's kind of ludicrous in a way. In fact, when I went to see the show in London, Rosemary Ash, who created the role over there, uh, and I went out to supper afterward, and I said, uh, tell me, tell me about that E eight times a week. And she said, well, you know, it's not so much the E that gets you. It's all them sustained Ds. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I just pictured myself picking up my vocal cords every night, sort of putting them in my pocket, taking them home. But... Um, no, the preparation for, for uh, supporting that kind of breath that is necessary to... It's an athletic event, sitting, singing anyway, but singing that high. And the entire role is above the staff, yeah. really. It kind of mm, goes down every now and again. Not often. Then there's the problem of trying to get the words out, and I happen to think they're important, so um, <laughs> silly me. So I, um, it's, it's interesting uh, making language understandable up there. And uh, especially with a, an Italian dialect on top yeah. of it. So, um, <laughs> yes, there was some special training involved. And, and, I, and, I, and I, like I say, I never, I wasn't sure that it would come up. But like, you know, these things would come up again, don't they? Because mm -hmm. here you are, really, in, even in Phantom, doing very physical things that I'll bet relate somewhat to uh, what you were doing swinging on that rope around, right? Yeah. Not quite, but uh, <laughs> it is. I mean, to sing to, to, to sing at this pitch at this level, you you are. I mean, at ten thirty, I'm in there getting made up on a on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and then we start. Uh, we're directly above and below each other, and and starting to warm up and find these E's and D's at, uh, oh, it's not a at, at eleven o'clock in the morning. Uh, have you ever heard two ostriches mating? <laughs> <laughs> I, what I have to do is, is I do a vocalise before just to sort of get everything going. But then when there's some loud music going on on stage, and I know I'm not going to disturb anybody, just before the scene where I have to go all the way up there, which is in Never Never Land for me. I mean, no one's ever paid me actual money to sing up there. So uh, I, I do. I start screaming up there as high as I can. And then as soon as it gets quiet, I stop again. And then, then go down and pray that it's all going to come out properly at the right moment. Patty, you, uh, you've uh, moved into opera. I don't know where, where you started, but you've done La Boheme and Pirates of Penzance. And did, where did, did you well, actually, come from with that? Or did you I start, you know? basically in, a, in, in club work. I, I sang with a friend of mine, country western and folk. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and, and I, bluegrass. So I went to Nashville, which is always the logical way to go yes. when you're going into theater. So I, I, 
I stayed there basically as a session singer and, and worked at the park there and just, you know, with all the other songwriters trying to, to get ahead as a, as a country singer. So when Big River came along, I was so excited because I finally got to sing what I hadn't sung in about 10 years. But yes, I went very legit all of a sudden. I think because of my mother's uh, influence, she was an opera singer. And so I grew up with opera. I understood it, but I'd never <coughs> done it. So it was... But... Um, the legitimate Vocally, did you have to do some special work when you went into La Boheme and all, or did, was it just there? Actually, it was just there. I just sang. I've always sung my whole life, and I just didn't really... Uh, interestingly enough, I didn't really study voice as much as I just worked towards the things I liked to sing. And my mother, the only thing she ever said to me, she goes, if it hurts, don't do it. And it was the best thing that was ever said to me as a, as a vocalist. So the only thing that I really had, speaking of training, I, the, the thing that I had to come back to was the ballet because I'd given it up for 15 years and all of a sudden I'm back on point. So that was an interesting, that was training. That's what yes. I started working on seriously when I... I think we ought to move to Blythe from away from the music here. Oh, from no, this is much better. <laughs> 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 have, you, have you ever been involved in a musical? I started out in, in musicals, actually. I, was, I went to Berlin when I was um, an exchange student there, and I studied leader, and I wanted, to, I wanted to, to do that. And then I came back here and got Butterflies of Freedom. She was such a kooky girl, and, I, and everything was, you know, very forward. And, and I thought, this isn't right for this girl that comes out in her underwear and prances around. And it was kind of, you know, I, I felt it should be a lower voice. So I started doing that. And I wasn't, unfortunately, didn't, I was working with somebody, but didn't learn to really properly support it. So by the end of that run, after a year, I was stuck with this. <laughs> and um, so I haven't really sung since, a little bit here and there. But that was my first love, because my, my brother's an opera singer, and, and my dad was a singing banker in Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> he always did oratorio work with the Philadelphia Orchestra, and he always did, always did the uh, Messiah and the Seven Last Words. And so I grew up with, uh, with a great... My, it really is my first love still. And John, yes. do you sing too in the shower? Uh, <laughs> I used to do lots and lots of musical stuff when I was a student. Uh, Where were at you college at Harvard? Yeah. Um, the first, the first thing I did on stage was I replaced somebody at the last minute in a, in a Gilbert and Sullivan opera, Utopia Limited, playing this kind of baritone comedy role, and uh, and I was a sensation in it. I got these <laughs> wonderful uh, ovations and encores and everything. Uh, I think it was mostly because I couldn't sing very well and sort of <laughs> tricked my way around it. But I I did about. Six, five or six Gilbert and Sullivan operas, and all the parts that Cyril Richard used to play in La Paracole and uh, um, The Merry Widow. I did a wonderful summer of light opera, and I've always wanted to do it again. I, I'm not, I don't know, when you're, the business kind of uh, divides you into two camps very quickly, I've found, and, and then there becomes very little crossover. Um, I remember the one thing I've done as a professional actor in the musical business was the, the old Millikan show, that oh, yeah. great big industrial. Tommy Toon couldn't do it for some reason, and they needed somebody tall. <laughs> so, sure. And uh, they managed to cut out all the tap dancing and all the singing, and there I was. So, me. <laughs> so there you were, Tommy Toon. As Nancy Walker's straight man, tall, tall straight man. Uh, and there I was with all the very best musical performers in the business. We were all working on Broadway. 
I was in uh, uh, My Fat Friend at the time, and they were all in Pippin and Little Night Music, all the very best dancers and singers, and I had never met any of them. It just seemed extraordinary that I was part of one band of actors and they were part of another. And, you know, I've, I've made friends in that group that I, I still have, but I still hardly ever see them. And I, I think that's unfortunate. I would love to do something musical, but I'm nowhere near uh, as good as the people who are in that camp. And, uh, you know, until, until somebody gets some very perverse brainstorm. <laughs> it's, it's the opposite is a problem, too. Of yeah, course. of course I it mean, is. Those of us, I mean, I, as I mentioned, I started off as a, an actress studying classics and all that stuff. And uh, so to, to get a chance to go back to that, that's, that's going to be difficult. Mm. You know? Would you like to do it? Sure. But Someday, I, hit a gabbler. But it's, <laughs> but it's very, it's very hard to think of instances of that kind of crossover when you think about it. I, I, mean, I find that very uh, surprising because in England this this doesn't happen as much. Mm -hmm. And if you, we we are allowed to cross over. We go from drama to comedy to musical to. You've done that. Well, but I've been allowed to do yes, it. Exactly. It's been accepted. And if I want to, if one wants to join the Royal Shakespeare and there's the right thing, then one is allowed to do so. But um, so that surprises me here because the I, I do find this extraordinary closeness in the theatre here in New York, which we do not have in in London, where an audience is so knowledgeable of um, opera and of the musical theatre. It isn't a closed shop opera. It isn't impossible for the audience to go to. Here in, in London, it is. It's, it's outpriced itself. It's all subsidized. And the tickets are about, uh, I, I'm most probably wrong, but I mean, something like $350 or something, which the ordinary member of public can't, can't afford to go to. Um, so therefore, in Phantom, we're getting, in the pastiche pieces, we're getting a lot of reaction from all the audiences, not just the first week or so, where the, where the really in people come. I mean, we're getting the, the reaction to the pastiche pieces now, and uh, it seems to be an ongoing situation. So that is very exciting about New York. So it surprises me that there isn't the, the same, uh, th that sort of feeling about yeah. one being able to join, because it does encourage actors to take part in music rather than singers taking part in music alone which um, in in days gone by uh, an opera singer was known to be one of the worst actors in the world mm -hmm. and 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 can put you off opera from a very early age and and ha has done uh, <laughs> in many cases but now there are some wonderful uh, opera singers who are very fine actors but it's um, I mean, Rex Harrison in the musical field is a wonderful example. He was the only um, um, Professor Higgins, really. I mean, he was, the, he was superb. Couldn't sing a note. Jean, <laughs> so. I'd like to ask Erica a question. How often are you asked or are you told that, uh, oh, no, he can't sing, I've never seen him sing, or, or whatever it might be. He's a straight actor. What do you do as an agent, then, if you believe that he can or she can? fill another role. I think that you hear that a lot from producers um, and directors, that they have seen a certain performer, you know, perform in a certain way, and that's their um, picture of, of who that person is. And it's then your job as an agent to then say, no, 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 this person can do anything, or this person can sing, this person, 
who can sing can also act. And it's, that's your job as an agent to convince that producer or director to at least see the person and talk to the person and see if, in fact, he or she can do that. Um, and it's sometimes a very difficult job. But it's, that's what you're hired for as an agent, to be and able... And you are able from time to time to convince them to at least look at them in another yeah. role? I mean, I think that what you, you know, the best thing that you can do is to convince somebody to give somebody a chance, you know, particularly with younger performers, you know, and newer performers, to see them and see them in another light. Mm -hmm. And you can do that. It's not easy, but you can do it. <laughs> Actually, when, when you moved in to opera, I mean, yes. it really was from, as you say, from oh, nightclubs and country and music. Absolutely. And Michael, you'd never, when you, when you did Phantom, you had really been, someone compared, for those of us who remember, called you the Ray Bolger of... Uh, of London. Uh, no, I saw that, uh, which is, uh, from, from, my, from my, stand, my standpoint, a, a tremendous accolade. But you hadn't done anything like opera before, had you? I actually started in opera. Did you? I, I started with Benjamin Britten when I was about when you were 12, 13, 14. I was singing in Let's Make an Opera and Noise Flood. Um, I, I, I failed for Turn of the Screw, but I, uh, I was very close to to opera from an early age, so it gave me a... So it wasn't that, that foreign for you? Well, no, I can, I can actually hang on. When people say, we were very surprised by your casting in Phantom, I can actually say, well, no, I don't think you should, because 32 years ago I was in... <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, when I say there's this easy crossover, I actually, you do have to be, you do have to sacrifice a, a few years sometimes, because uh, I'm sure Patty or John, I mean, any of us would know, you, you do have that fight, as Erica says, to convince, and you have to be brave enough to be out of work for some time. <laughs> And that is, that is some difficulty. I mean, you need private means. Luckily, I had private means. I used to fry eggs at McDonald's <laughs> so, um, for years. And, uh, and, and, and so that you do have to be brave and, and, and actually take time out and say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do another comedy. I do want to do that and wait till someone do, does give you that chance. I think, yes, I think that you also have to be willing to go in and audition and do something perhaps that you haven't done before. I mean, for, certainly for a more experienced performer who's done one kind of thing to then say, well, I want to do this, I want to sing, I want to be able to do this. You have to then be willing to go in and sort of perhaps expose yourself a bit that, in a certain way that you haven't. So you, it, it is quite brave on the part of, of, of the performer. I, can, let's move for a moment if we can. We might come back to the musical because I'd like to ask Blythe. She's played some parts that uh, are a, a bit of a stretch, and you've had quite a range. I mean, you played a mother in uh, Brighton Beach Memoirs, which I, you don't strike me as, I mean, I know you are a mother, but uh, you know, <laughs> you're not that. And, but, uh, and then the southern parts, which you just, you know, have been doing Blanche Dubois, is a, no, no, go ahead, I just wanted to. No, I was just saying what Michael said about bra being brave. I think that that's, uh, besides talent, I mean, you know, which with varying degrees of, I don't. I, I think I have more brave, more courage than the than the other former, but I just think uh, you have to just um, if if you burn to do do it, you know if you if you have to. I have a certain way. I must let out my <laughs> insanity through uh, my my fantasies through these roles. It makes me a better person and a better mother, a better person to be around. I must have this outlet. And, I, and as a person, I don't think I'm as brave as I'd like to be. So as an actress, I try to be, you know, just take the courage. I mean, you are, after all, you're saying, I'm naked, I stand naked before you. This is my, the actor does that. You know, I can suffer the slings and arrows I've 
you know, you just you you have to serve the work and 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 have courage to do it. I mean, I think that it's um, it's a, the bravest thing a person can do. Yes, I, I'd like to ask you at this point: Have you ever turned down a role because you thought, no, that that's not good for me. I'll be out of work rather than do that. Yes, yes. I mean, I was fortunate that I was married. My husband was. I mean, the living. You know, maybe not, in the beginning, we couldn't. When I was, he was an unemployed writer. I was taking all sorts of things. You know, playing uh, dreary housewives one after another because we needed a couch or, or a car or whatever, you know. But then, and then at a party one night, one woman, a, a man came up to me and said, are you still playing those weasoned women? <laughs> and I said, oh dear, I think I better stop doing this. So we went with a, so what a terrible, wizened or weasoned, however one <laughs> So, so yes, I try to, to do as, as many different things. What does your agent say? I'm dying to know. When, oh, the ways in the room. What? Wizened room. Wizened, 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 yes. I said, isn't, that all, isn't that something? But you know, I said, well, I'm an actor, so I have to suffer the slings and arrows. It's character building. You just go on and go but on and do your work. You've had a, an opportunity, though, with, you've had a long association with the Williamstown Theater. Yes. And that's yes. given you a chance to perform parts you probably wouldn't have otherwise. That's right. I think, you know, I'm fortunate, because as Michael says, you know, in, in London, I think the transition between all of the, the dramas and comedies and repertory and, you know, you can zip it out way into the, to the back country somewhere and, and then come back and do, you know, we don't seem to have that luxury. We seem to be so much more oriented to uh, success and if you're doing well, you don't dare sort of disappear to go do something that other, a lot of people won't see. I think the flexibility is so wonderful that, that, that the British people have and Williamstown has afforded me and so many other <laughs> actors to, to go and work on the classics and, and things that we don't much, get much of a chance to do in this country. Well, and actually, uh, Streetcar yeah. was an outgrowth of the Williamstown. Yes, we did Streetcar two, two years ago <coughs> up there with a, with a different cast, but it was... But you were playing Blanche. Yes, yes. yes. How yes. was it to play Blanche then and did you, and then this time that you've just been playing? Well, it's... Uh, it's a, it's a tremendously challenging role, I need yes, to say. Yes, certainly. And I wouldn't have thought, uh, this may sound rather odd, but the... the uh, this is a very much a proscenium piece, we found out the hard way. And we were at Circle in the Square, which I, and I may have, can I quote? <laughs> I love, Maria Tucci told me the other day that John affectionately calls it the wiener in the square because <laughs> it's like a hot dog. <laughs> huge, huge football field. And you know, after all, Blanche and, and Stella and Stanley are all claustrophobic and very much, in, you know, ready to, you, you feel like you have to be stuck in a tiny space and it's that was a little difficult and also you we had a curtain and so many things before you could reach the audience you so it was quite a struggle you would use three times the energy that you did in the proscenium because it's such a delicate play it is a compassion play as well but those still moments you know you you just couldn't sort of at <laughs> that still moment you had to go <laughs> Did you get that? <laughs> so that, that detracted a bit. I, it made it a little bit more difficult, but it was a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> and I think we got stronger as time went on. <laughs> I think any theater in, in that setting is, is harder. It's a difficult Musicals or, or plays or in anything the, in, in, the, in, in, in thrust or in around. around. Comedy, is, uh, I think, is maybe more effective. Because you could take a line and turn it. Sorry, maybe, but, maybe, but it's, it's not fun. And, and like in these, these theaters in the round, around the country that seem to have now sort of quietly shuttered, but finding an aisle to put your back to so that you can hit the most mm -hmm. people. And, fi and if you've done a show in proscenium and then suddenly you, you take it into that other mm. form, 
it's maddening. I, like I don't ever want to do it again if unless, yeah. of course, I unless would, I have to. Now, I, I would think that in the round is the worst of all, and then the next would be the thrust. Is or is that because the way you describe it, trying to find a backstop is really. It is. It, 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 well, you, you want to control good. the space yeah. and the and the focus, and it's so hard to do. John, that. you were about to. Yeah. Well, no, she just used the word focus. That's what I was going to contribute. It's, see, I'm sort of obsessive about focus. Uh, Brad will tell you. <laughs> I, it's like there's always a one place that everybody should be looking, you know, even if it's in one body. You know, you wouldn't be fiddling your foot when your mouth is saying a very important line. Uh, in the round, it's just ten times as difficult to adjust exactly where the audience is looking because half of them can't see it. You know, it's, it's very tricky. When we were in a, in a, a three-quarter round, so it was, and the third act was never uh, set in blocking. We improved every night. Oh. <laughs> was this for a reason, or was this a just yes? It was, well, it was a reason. Will really wanted an improvisational blocking. He really wanted. So you just didn't know what was going to happen, <laughs> and it was a focus problem. Absolutely, we had to really be aware every time we went into the third act which was the, the, the quartet in Bohème, when you had uh, Musetta with uh, Marcello and, and Mimi with Rodolfo, and you're doing this incredible, you know, and they're running around and we're doing our thing, and it was always, you know, but it, it worked. I, you know, people loved the moments, but... And there was no murder? No murder. No murder. That's, it was an incredible ensemble, these four people, we just... But obviously, the physical space makes an enormous difference Absolutely. in terms of, uh, oh, in yes. terms of the, the comfort of the thing. We, we, had a, we had quite an amazing transition from Washington to New York with M. Butterfly, not in terms of per, going from thrust to proscenium, but just size. We went from a 1,600-seat house to an 1,100-seat house. Was that better? Did you oh, like? it was unbelievable. Amazing. Isabel was at our first preview oh, and I, I, in, in New York. It's so exciting. And it, w it was this incredible rush of discovery for us. It was like, oh, finally, this, the play is finally working the way we always thought it would. It's just amazing. So that made an enormous difference, really, oh, yeah. in, the, in the impact of the play and then the reception. Oh, yeah. You were about to say something. Well, there, it wasn't even just the size of the house. It was the relationship between the stage and the audience, I think. And I, just even walking out onto the stage as they were loading the set in, I realized that the, our relationship with the audience was just going to change uh, beneficially. And, and th there was also a lot of other things. The set just looked so much more gorgeous at the Eugene O'Neill than it did at the National. The National, uh, the walls are turquoise in the National, and the, the set is red, and, and it just didn't look as, as gorgeous as it does now. And there's also something that happens, I think, where you, we, I really feel like the audience is right up there. They're just somehow dr drawn right into the center of that little black box, and with us, and, which I definitely didn't feel in, in, at the National. Well, the National has a, an orchestra pit, and, uh, yeah. and that well, is you, always... Well, has an orchestra pit, too. Yes, it's, I know, but it's very small. You yeah. hardly notice it. Right. But it's a great big one at the National, a regular mm -hmm. orchestra pit, and I found as an actress it was impossible uh -huh. ever to do to, comedy to, yeah. over a, a, an orchestra pit. <laughs> straight up into the gods, you know. Yeah. I'd like to ask... I go all the way back to the very beginning of this. Was it John Dechter's idea, the director, to bring in the man from the Peking Opera to prepare you for this? How, how did you get into the 
idea that you should have this two weeks of working with someone completely outside of the uh, Well, uh, one of uh, David Huang, the playwright, mm -hmm. uh, he, uh, in many of his plays, there is a, a convention of, of um, a, a different type of theater, or he, he uses Asian theater styles a lot in his plays. This was a play in which the main character was a Peking opera performer, or I, I dare say a Peking opera star, or in, in, this, in David's version of the, this, this true story, this man is a Peking opera star. So that seemed like uh, a really important thing for me to carry through the uh, entire uh, first two acts of the play, uh, the way the, a person carries themselves when they have this solid training behind them. It's, it seems different. It did really affect my entire performance. It wasn't necessarily uh, Mr. Dexter's idea. I think it was written into the play. Mm -hmm. And then it was just uh, Jamie, the man who came from China to uh, train me, just happened to be actually reading for my role. And uh, because they, the, the role, you know, the submission went out for a Peking opera performer, and he definitely is probably the only one in the nation in, the, in this country who could perform Peking opera faithfully. But he came to read for uh, my role, and, and in the interview it came out that he was really, he didn't speak, he doesn't speak English very well. And uh, they ended up calling him a, a few days later and saying, would you come and stage these, these sequences? And he did. And uh, I'm still, in, in direct response to your question, I'm still a little confused about the collaboration between the producer Stuart Ostro and David, the playwright, and John Dexter because of their collaboration seems so seamless. So I'm often, excuse me, I'm often very <laughs> confused about whose idea something is you when they ask. on the producer's uh, seminar and you'll find out all right. about exactly. it. <laughs> and I'll sit and I'll ask Stuart all the questions that I've been Before asking. Before we get completely off of space and, and theater space, I wanted to ask Michael if there were any differences between the theater you played the Phantom in in London and the theater you're at in New York in terms of the, of the Phantom. They had to do a lot of transformation of the, of I guess both theaters, but particularly the theater here. Yes, they they, they did. I think it's a, uh, um, I think, truthfully, the bottom line is, and I love the way producers justify it, but they do in fact make more money at the Majestic than they would at a smaller theater. But um, uh, it it in fact was more intimate at Her Majesty's in London. It. Uh, for me has been quite difficult the transformation going to this larger theatre because of the the power of the character within the space that I'm that I'm given and then the um, restrictions of the, the sound available to you uh, so many things those so were many at Her Majesty's than they are here at the uh, it's majestic. personal but yes. Uh, yes they were slightly easier to deal with but one adjusts. I mean, as you adjusted, we adjust. And uh, uh, the American company don't know no, any difference, so therefore we are... It feels perfectly wonderful. Yes. Uh, it, it certainly uh, looks fine in there, looks wonderful in there, and they've made the chandelier larger and everything, and so everything's <laughs> in proportion. But um, it, it just that I was, when I was on uh, above the proscenium, I was above the audience, so that when I, I, I looked down, I was looking down on everyone. Here, there are a few 
you up there as well. <laughs> so they sort of see you climbing up and you're going, hi. <laughs> <laughs> so the power doesn't quite begin until you're up. They see this phantom crawling along. <laughs> Well, it, as an observer, I must say it was in London. It was it. There was this intimacy, even though it was a it was an but it was an Italianate opera house. So it was just perfect for the uh, yes. for the for the. It sounds like all of you would prefer a smaller theater to a larger oh, one, sure. and a proscenium uh, unless it's particularly adaptable because of John, of your focus. This idea that yeah. that, that well, you've it's, got it's this theater, theater. they can mm -hmm. see yeah. that yes, working. Right. They, well, in my case, that working. <laughs> <laughs> they, can, they can see the body. They can see as in dance. In film, you uh, with focus, you go into what you want to see. In theater, we have to create that focus. The artists on that stage. Um, and, and, and it is vitally important. Mm -hmm. And the further you get on in your career and the more experience you have, I think uh, I'm way on with John there, that you, you are very, I'm very strict about it because it's, uh, I mean, Patty and I talk about it every day. She has a very difficult task doing two shows a week and not, uh, not all eight with me because I am very used to the movement. It's, it's choreographed in a way that you move so many steps and when you get there, I'm half blind and I think, oh, she's over there and I have to go. It's, uh, it's, it's wrong because it is choreographed and, and, and performances are choreographed. Uh, th however spon spont uh, spontaneous they are at that, that moment, as they always are, there's never a sound of music comes out of each musician that's the same every night. It's spontaneous and wonderfully so. That's theatre. The audiences are all, that's what makes it so exciting to do. But uh, it has to be technically consistent. The lights have to come on at a certain moment when you make that move and then it's effective. As the picture that was painted by the director when you opened. Yeah, the, you, you mentioned film and the focus question, because a lot of you have worked in television and film as well as the theatre. What, how do you feel about the comparison? Is it Blythe? Is it totally different? Or is it... Uh, oh, do you have a preference? Because I hate film. I'm well, John, no, Johnny's so wonderful at both. This is a, a, a theater seminar. I right? just have trouble with it because I'm not terribly focused. It takes every bit of energy I can <laughs> muster up to be concentrated and focused. And I think the best film actors are, are, have just incredible focus. They're just, they're, they're there. You know, I find that it's so... For me, I really need the beginning, the middle, and the end. I'm just simple. <laughs> and I, I so admire great film performances. Of which well, it sounds so like you like to go through the whole I arc of the performance. I almost have to. Yes. I mean, it's just, a, it's just so difficult for me to pick up and drop off and get back in. And it's just a... a Nice. Find it very difficult. John. Well, the nice thing about plays in that sense is you are living through those three hours, the, the story, with the audience. You know, they, they share the experience with, with you. When you act in a film, you have to have in your, in your brain the, the sense of the arc. Uh, you have to know, you know, because it, it is so completely out of sequence and the energy levels vary so completely. I've sometimes done one half of one sentence and then three months later done the other half. I mean, it's, it can, with a different background, it, it can be completely crazy and you have to have a little uh, uh, editing machine on the set to re replay what you did three months ago so that you can sort of match that. It, it's incredibly difficult and you just have to keep it all in your brain. And so, you know, there is a person on a movie set, the script supervisor, whose entire job is supposedly to keep track of that for you, but he or she can't keep track of the emotional life. It's all your job, and 
It's a matter of memory. That's not what you have on stage. On stage, it has its own organic life. It, it, it just grows in the course of the evening, and you go with the flow. It's very hard to duplicate that. But I, in, in Butterfly, you start at the end, and then you come back again. How do you do that? Where, what well, do you call upon for that? Well, it, it's, uh, it's just easy to... I know what the shape of the evening is. I know how it goes every night. It's a rehearsed journey. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, <coughs> B.D., you had done more... I guess television and some film did you and I know you've done theater too but this experience are you finding this uh, rewarding in terms of oh, yeah. I mean, in addition to the play but I mean this arc that we're talking about well uh, you know the challenges for me were uh, challenges that you don't find in television and film the vocal challenge I mean if we made a uh, if we made M Butterfly the film Vocally, it would just be a lot easier. It would just be we, you know, we we come off the stage sometimes and we're just rasping, and 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 you know, it's because uh, you don't have that uh, smallness, that, that that you know, that intimacy where you can whisper and and, and be heard so easily. Uh, vocally, the, the, I think that that was that's the main thing that comes to my mind, the, the difference, and the you know, the 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 continuity isn't as much a problem for me. Uh, it's frustrating, but it's not something that I, I don't, that, that uh, bothers me that much. I find it kind of challenging. I, 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 I don't always like it, but I think it's... it's Patty, you, you, the, Michael referred to the fact that you play the heroine in Phantom mm -hmm. two days a week. Mm -hmm. Is that, what do you, how do you deal with that in terms of the other days and in terms yeah, of coming into it? It must be a, a real challenge. Probably for everybody else to deal with me when I come in because <laughs> I really feel like a ping pong ball. I was, I'm bouncing off the walls. I've got all this energy and everyone else has had to play, you know, and they're in a, in a definite blended, you know, form and I have to blend with that. And it took me quite a while to adjust to the energy uh, level. I had to learn to control it a lot more with Michael's help because we had to work very, very specifically on the adjustments to make it flow. It has to flow. It is choreographed. It took me a while to get the specific technical aspects of the part. Once I've gotten, I'm much more relaxed with that now. I'm, I'm much more at home with it. So I can, the whole thing is more <coughs> relaxed and I, I think my energy level is a little more focused. Thank goodness. <laughs> and we can all relax a little bit. <laughs> and so, but Thursday nights, still an ice pond. I, it's still a little strange on a Thursday night for me. I Is wanted to ask, who else helps you with that besides Michael? What about your stage management? Stage management, absolutely. And, and everyone, and the company. I mean, usually if there's an adjustment to make, we usually talk to each other about it. If there's a, you know, I need you to be downstage a little more. What Judy, I'm always stepping... Patty, what's the stage manager's role in this? Well, in just... So we can just briefly talk about that for a minute. For, for my adjustment? Mm -hmm. Usually uh, he asks me if I have any needs and Michael, the, the two of us, I think it's very important that Michael and I, we try to meet at least five minutes, uh, you know, and talk about things and get reacquainted. I mean, we don't see each other. So Mitchell, he's usually very, very wonderful about checking with me and see if there's anything I need to talk about. Uh, and if there's any adjustment, usually I, I meet with Michael about five minutes uh, 
during the half hour or even for sooner You than were that. about to say something about Judy. Judy. Well, <laughs> she's got this incredible costume change oh, for Ilmuta. Oh. Well, yeah, that changed. But it, for a while, dealing with me, stepping on her skirt and just stopping. Anytime you have a train on, on a, you know, the, the worst part is when someone is stepping on you because it's just, oh. Tell me about You're it. You're not going anywhere. <laughs> Isn't it the worst? Yeah. <laughs> Drew was the same way because I had like a two and a half foot bustle behind me with the train on top of that, and so I got real used to being stepped on and stopped in my tracks. We're doing so, it. We're doing a, uh, our little comic scene. Yes. One of the pastiches is a, a Mozartian uh, comic opera, right. opera buffa, <laughs> and uh, and that stuff is all kind of very finely worked out too. These comedies of manners and all that, and 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 interestingly, you know, Sarah does it somewhat differently. Uh, the, the moves are kind of the same, but the, uh, the energy, the intention is different. And I find on those evenings when I'm with you that I kind of have to, yes. we have to find a, a midpoint Absolutely. together, energy-wise. Sure I, mean, I have to make sure that when they need my, my right arm, it should be there. I mean, it's, like, it's a terrible thing when they reach and you're not there. And, uh, <laughs> so it was that kind of the technical aspects. That's what I mean. It was so important for me to get that as honed as possible. And I'm still making mistakes, but I feel much better about that part of it. So I'm actually having a good time. I'm going time. to have to interrupt now because we're going to go back for questions as when we pick this up again from the audience. And don't go far away. Just stand up, take a stretch, have your questions ready. I have many questions I want to ask too. And so this seminar will go on with questions and answers from the panel. Thank you. Thank you. This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York.
continuing the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre, which are coming to you from the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. I'm Isabel Stevenson, and I'm president of the American Theatre Wing. I would like to introduce two very special people before we go on with this wonderful panel on performance. Lucille Lortel, who is a producer and a marvelous friend of the theater, and right now has an awfully good play on Broadway called A Walk in the Woods. Lucille Lortel. Lucille Lotel is a good friend and a wonderful, wonderful talent. Jerry Lawrence, who is a playwright. And everyone knows Jerry. Thank you. And now, once more, I'm going to turn this over to Jean Dalrymple and to Ed Wilson, our co-moderators on this wonderful, wonderful panel on what it is to work in the theater. Jean, we would you continue? Well, I think that uh, I'd rather have uh, Ed do it. <laughs> well, <I'm happy laughs> Thank you, G. We have a lot of people with questions, and we want to get to them as quickly as possible. But I thought very briefly before we get to those, we would just ask uh, the performers to tell us a little bit about the preparation and discipline for the performances they're giving, how, how far ahead of time they get to the theater and what they do there, because some of them have referred to it in the first part. Judy, you talked about warming up in the wings, as it were. How far ahead of time do you get to the theater for A Phantom in the Opera, and, and what do you do in preparation? Well, um through the day, I, after, after about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I'll sort of start humming a little bit to see, is it there, is it there, oh, thank God, it's there. And then uh, I arrive at the theater, try to get to the theater like about 5, 10 of 7 for an 8 o'clock curtain, and um, just sort of put my contacts in and look at myself and go, oh. And then start the, the makeup, which is... is uh, I wear about 16 pairs of eyelashes, and it takes me a full hour to get them all on. And, and, <laughs> and, uh, and do a little stretching in my room, you know, f stretching out of my body as well as my voice, and uh, just sort of think about what it is and who I'm going to, who I'm going to be that, that night. I'm BD. With uh, your eyelashes. <laughs> I wear 17 pairs of eyelashes. Um, I try to get to the theaters anywhere between 5 and 6. And uh, that's funny because John is always commenting that he never gets to see me out of drag. <laughs> we always see each other on the stage, or he comes to the theater and visits me, and I'm already all hurt already. And, and so we never, this morning he said, boy, who's that? You know? <laughs> So uh, I try to get there between five and six. Uh, the makeup takes a couple of hours. I put music on and I, I try to do it slowly and really methodically. And um, I try to uh, stretch before I do that because uh, physically I, I need to just kind of loosen it all up before I can do it. And uh, then vocally I'm also at around two or three trying to see if it's there because if it's not, you really have to use it a lot more during the day so that you can get it there by five minutes to eight. How did you approach getting that feminine note in your voice, which is so beautiful and so unusual? Thank you. Um, I had a vocal coach who worked with me on the entire script uh, named Robert Williams, who was really great. He also trained the company in, in uh, 
vo uh, uh, articulation and diction and, and projection with a half-hour class before every rehearsal. But he especially took me and worked with me on uh, variety and, and um, uh, flexibility in the upper range of my voice, of my speaking voice, mostly. Um, so he, he was the main person that really got me to loosen it all up on the top. Say, say a, a line now. Well, you know, I would, but I, it's just I not there. I was wondering if you can. It's yeah. just not there. It's just way too early. And yes. I'm, <laughs> I'm panicking, actually, yeah. as I speak to you. Michael, you get, you get to the theater well ahead of time, don't you? And then on, on matinee days, you can't even you have to stay in your makeup, don't you, between the matinee and the evening performance? Yes, I do. Uh, uh, well, you sort of scare them in the deli if you go out with it on. <laughs> <laughs> sort of get served very quickly, though. <laughs> there's no cue, there's no line problem. Uh, on a matinee day, I'm there at 10.30 in the morning. Um, on a 8 o'clock show, I'm there at about 1 in the afternoon. I have to do mail and stuff, uh, and then I start make-up at about half past 3, uh, which takes two hours, and then I have something to eat, rather clumsily, messily, and uh, then I have a, um, a rest. I try and sleep for about 40 minutes, which I can. I can just go out. And then I start to warm up physically and, and uh, vocally. But I think the main thing is up there. I'm in there at one, and I don't see if it's raining, and I don't see if it's sunny, and I resent being in the theatre. I forget about it. I just have those bricks outside the wall, <laughs> outside the window, and, uh, and I, I, I forget about the outside world, and I, I'm into what I'm going to be doing that evening. That's the way I work. It's not, uh, it's not for everyone to do, and I don't advocate it for anyone else, but I, I, I just I have to concentrate very heavily on what I do. Did you do that for other roles besides... Yes, uh, like in, in Barnum, did you... Yes, in Barnum, I used to go in at same time at one o'clock and uh, then we would start a physical warm-up at four o'clock and that would take an hour and a half because otherwise you would injure yourself we had to go up on and do the trapeze we had to work on the trampoline we had to do a physical warm-up for just warming the muscles up and uh, once you get past 30 uh, you, <laughs> you have to warm up that little bit longer. I guess I'll find out. Excuse me, Isabel, what do you want? I was going to say that we have so many questions. These people are all lined up here that could we just go into our questions now so that we can possibly answer as many of them as possible. Would you? Yes. Uh, my name is Al Yenawali, and my question is directed to, to Mr. Lithgow. Uh, there's a quote ascribed to you that I'd like you to expand on. Did you say that film work was fattening, whereas theater work is thinning? <laughs> I've said lots of variations on that. <laughs> I, just, I always gain weight when I do movies and lose weight when I do plays. That's why I do plays. <laughs> well, what is the reason for the well, weight gain? Well, you would know if you spend a day on a movie set. It is just, it is 80% waiting. What everybody says is true. Waiting and eating. There's nothing else. <laughs> I, 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 I really uh, prescribe for myself some 
um, energizing activity when I approach a movie. I mean, in a long sense. I, uh, I, I put together some sort of project. The last movie I did, I, I stitched a leather bag, and it took about a month and a half to do. But it, I would get very involved in it, or I play m music, play guitar or banjo. I do something that I would rather do than act, just something to, to keep me alive on the movie set, because otherwise you vegetate and gain weight. Thank you. My name is Sarah Jackson, and my question is addressed to the panel. Did you audition for your roles, and how do you feel about auditioning? Ah. Had <laughs> <laughs> I, I auditioned for mine. How many times? Just once. I spent about a half an hour with, uh, with B.D. He was already engaged, and uh, Dexter didn't know my work very well and just gave me the uh, stage. He said, you go ahead, direct yourself, give me your version of this role. And Brad and I had this... It was a blast. It was great. <laughs> it was like uh, we did four or five scenes. It was the first audition I'd done in a while, but I auditioned. Ask about auditioning. Would you like to add to that? I auditioned for my role. Uh, it's almost a year ago now. I mean, it was uh, April or May when I auditioned. And uh, I really enjoy auditioning a lot. I, f I find it really, uh, I don't know why I do. I was having a discussion with some people last night about it. I just find it very, very, uh, like a game or something like that, or like a little sporting event. I just always have enjoyed it. Isn't that unusual for an actor? I don't know. I, feel, I kind of feel the same way. Yeah, I, I think you have to it. get to know the, you want to know the director as well. I can never understand why actors are rather, you know, insulted if they're asked to audition, because, I, because you also need to know what mm -hmm. the director's concept is and, and feelings, and, and it's very... Why don't we all? It's a lot more fun when a director gets involved. I mean, when in those auditions where they they said, "Okay, just get up and do it," and they they don't in, join in the fun with you. It isn't it isn't as enjoyable an experience. And I auditioned for Anything Goes, and Jerry Zachs was a prime example. He was terrific in the audition process. Mm -hmm. He he made it fun, and even though I wasn't hired, I felt like I actually had learned something that day. I went away with something. Patty. How do you feel about it? Well, I, it's an agonizing thing for me. I, I had four auditions for this, and the most specific one I, was my first time out uh, to sing for everyone, and, and Hal had not seen me in, in at least three years. Um, at least we hadn't really gotten to talk. And I was shaking so badly, he came running up on stage and gave me a big hug, and he says, well, I thought that was the subway train going underneath the theater. It's you. <laughs> so I, I, no, I don't function well in audition process, but um, I learn from them. I definitely mm -hmm. learn from the process, and I, but I have yet to perfect the, the way to, to handle it. I still get nervous. Michael? Yes, I, 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 don't, I don't like them at all. Um, they, they were things that, I mean, some people are really good at auditions, and once they've got the part, they're absolutely <laughs> terrible. <laughs> and, uh, because they are, they're professionals at, at auditions, and it, it's that they're very good sight readers. Um, and as soon as they put that down, they go like that and they freeze. I, I, I mean, I auditioned years ago for a musical uh, in England. It was for Liverpool for a quite well-known gentleman, 
And they can be quite cruel at auditions. It's, they're always one of those, oh, hello, um, are you out there? Uh, and you're, sort of, you're standing there like this. And they said, uh, all right, Michael, could, are you going to sing something for us? I said, yes, I'm, uh, I'm uh, I, uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> on the street where you live. Um, he said, oh, great. <laughs> and you could, without even seeing, you could hear, oh, God, this the, uh, the 20th guy that's tried to sing on the street where you live. And there's always this dreadful point where you get to the middle section which goes way high and if you it, when they said what key would you like I mean I, the key to me was either the front door or the back door I didn't know <laughs> I didn't know what a key was when I said I started in opera I mean I just used to listen and, 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 and join in when it was my turn I couldn't actually read music so I did this audition and I and the pianist was was uh, I, I brought it was like the Ray Charles of the audition circuit uh, who couldn't see a thing and I gave him music to read <laughs> <laughs> and so I, he, he said, what key would you like? I said, well, uh, it's, um, I... <laughs> and he said, I, I haven't got an eye here, he said. <laughs> I have... I, that's where I start, roughly about there. So he, he said, try this. I said, I, I have... <laughs> and by the time, the time you've got to I have often, you know it's wrong. <laughs> and the hand is gone, and the head is shaking. And the legs have gone, and you always wear dark pants. And when I got to the middle, I went way off there. I said, "That's very, very high there." And I, I finished. I said, "I said, well, that's." The, I said, "We actually started in the wrong." He said, "We we we guessed that, Michael." Now uh, he said, uh, "Do you know anything else?" <laughs> and I could hear laughter and. The tears then, I mean, this is a, a, a funny, tragic story, because this happens to so many artists. And I still, it reminds me now, my bottom lip begins to go, because I was crying. And behind it was this, I had absolutely made a complete fool of myself. And this was my life. This was my life they were playing with out there. I had chosen to do this. And by virtue of me not being able to say I wanted in D or I wanted in this key, I had, uh, uh, I guess through my own ignorance, but I was only young, so I didn't know all this at that time. And I said, yes, I do. I said, would you mind standing up, please? And they said, sorry, Michael. I said, would you mind standing up, please? So they stood up, and I whispered to the pianist, and I sang the national anthem, and I walked <laughs> off. <laughs> work for the next three years. <laughs> so I don't, I don't uh, recommend that. Uh, Erica, what, do you have a problem with clients? Are there many that like to audition or do some balk if they're names? A lot uh, of them don't like to audition mm -hmm. at all and I think for the reason that Michael has just said, you know, because it, it can be terrifying and it is your life. And there are people out there saying, oh yeah, great, fine, you know. And I think that you know, you have to be very careful about auditions and that if somebody is going to, into audition to make sure that the person for whom they are doing this is understanding and sensitive to the fact that somebody is coming in totally stripping themselves naked, totally exposing themselves for maybe just a period of two or three minutes, you know. 
But I think, on the other hand, what Blatt said is also true, that you, if, if, you, if you, as the actor, can think of it as, hey, I'm going in and I want to know who you are, the director or the producer. I don't know if I want this. You know, I want to know what kind of a person you are. That takes it, a lot of courage. It takes a lot of courage, and it's much more difficult. Yes, because it mustn't appear as arrogance. No, 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 and I don't mean it as no, arrogance. No, I, and I know Blythe didn't, but oh, you have to be very, very careful <laughs> with a youngster going in. And oh, they absolutely. Say, well, I also, uh, you know, what it, how are you doing no, no, this? No, I don't what mean period? that you should, I don't mean that you say that to the person. I mean but that you, that you that ca too. if you can think of it in, in the back of your mind mm -hmm. as... What I meant also is actually when you reach a certain level, I mean, you know, not, if you're a little bit more well-known than you are when you're just beginning, a lot of people... A lot of people will say, "Oh, I don't, want, I don't audition yeah. anymore." You know that kind of thing. That's what I, I, I mean. We were, it was in the, But I think that, that that's true. Know, I, I yes. think that, that you that should be open to. What do you all think of uh, those directors that um, get you up for an audition and then say, "Now, um, extemporize," uh, you know, just, yeah. you know, I, I've, I've done. There's one director in town who read through the script and he takes it away from you and he says, "Now, I'm just." Give me your impression, your version well, of this I had, script. We that, had that with this. I had that with That this. drives me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> drives me. I thought it was really bizarre. Yeah. Drives me yeah. insane. Let go going to the next question. Hello, my name is Alison Carney, and this uh, question is directed to B.D. Wong. How did you learn to do the makeup on stage? On the stage? Yes. Well, I, I don't do the makeup on the stage. What I take happened? the makeup off on the stage. You take it off. Oh, how did I learn how to do that? Yes. It's John that does well. No, I put it on on stage. He takes it off. Oh, how he did I learn to do now that? Yes. Now you don't have to come see the show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm not exactly sure. You mean that particular... But the scene that you do with the audience is which you transform yourself into. <laughs> well, that was a, 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 an evolution of an idea that was in David's script. Um, David had written in the play that uh, the, the character transforms on on the stage, but he had written that the, the, the character transformed mostly off the stage and returned. Uh, and uh, it was John Dexter's idea that I uh, do the entire transformation on the stage. Mm -hmm. um, through the course of the, the tryout in Washington and the, the few weeks that we've been in New York, the change has gotten very, very specific. It's choreographed now and style, very stylized. So it's really a, a course of um, uh, process of having done it every night and, and experimenting with it and experimenting with all the different products and everything, that it's become a, a real ritual. It is. Yeah. Very theatrical. Thank you. Hi, my name is Luann Pavlin, and my question is for Erica Spellman. Have you ever dissuaded a client from taking a role on stage, and if so, why? Taking a role on stage? Well, t Or taking a role in a film, or? Any. Uh, well, because sometimes there are discussions about it, certainly. And usually it's because there's a choice of a couple of things to do. And um, usually it's because I think that maybe the other one is, is a better choice. So it's mostly a, a discussion, not a you can't do this or you should do that. It's, it's, it's a dialogue between, you know, between me, the agent and the client. Mildred Clinton for Miss Danner. Do you find it more difficult to recreate a classic role, such as Blanche Dubois, or to create a new one? Uh, gee, all I seem to have been doing in the last several years is, is um, <laughs> uh, roles, that, uh, revivals. So I've 
can't even think of a new play I've done in it's a long, long time. I mean, when I did Betrayal, that had been created in England by someone else. I, um, I don't, I'm, I'm at a loss. I don't know. They all seem new <laughs> to me because it's the first time I've inhabited them, of course. I mean, except with Blanche, who, who I played right. a few years ago. Thank you. Sorry. Totally Hi, I'm Leslie Nipko, and my question's for the panel. What advice would you have to offer for a young actor? <laughs> for what? <laughs> advice in what way? Um, for where? Auditioning, uh, for Miss Spellman, um, how to approach an agent. If someone asked you that general question. Why don't you just take that approach an agent? Because the rest of it would be a whole day. <laughs> My life. Why don't you? Because the agent is important, and you haven't, we have not zeroed in on that very much. I think it's 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 certainly very difficult. And, um, Did you speak up? Oh, sorry. It's it's certainly it, it's certainly very difficult for for a young performer. And I think that probably the best thing is that if you're performing somewhere in a workshop or uh, summer stock or region or anything, or even doing a showcase of some sort, to try to get somebody from um, an agency to come see it, even if it's not the agent. If it's somebody that even works for the agent or works with the agents, you know, if you can get somebody to come see it, come see your work, um, and then that person goes back and talks about you, I think that that's certainly a way to get somebody's attention. But I think it's basically having people come see you where, when you're working somewhere. Thank you. Uh, my name is Mary Jane Mundapar, and my question is for John Lithgow. Uh, what interests you in doing a new play? Something that you don't know if it's going to be a hit. You don't. Is it something vital in it? It's something that strikes you. The role. Well, it depends on the new play. I mean, the rule of thumb is anything that that uh, moves you one way or the other. It, it captures your interest. You want to do it. What I love about working on a new play is it's a completely creative experience. You, you enter into a, a very active creative relationship with the writer and the director and the other actors. Uh, and it's just incredibly exciting. The one thing about M. Butterfly that captivated me from the very beginning was this was a colossal play. I mean, it's a great big play that was headed right for Broadway. It's the chanciest thing I think I've ever done. And, it, it, and the same can be said for John Dexter, Stuart Ostro, all of us. It was pure audacity, and I thought, I shouldn't pass on this experience. Good for you. Uh, <laughs> no, Glad you didn't. <clears throat> uh, my name is Don Gibbs, and I'd like to ask B.D. Wong how he feels about the fact that all the critics revealed the entire nature of his role in their reviews. Well, I, that's, an that's a really great question. I uh, originally was very protective of that information and that, that um, gimmick. And uh, as the play runs, and after especially that initial review period, the, the audiences come to appreciate something else about the play, I guess the performance. So it's not as much of a, um, I, I don't panic as much about it as, as I used to. I used to think that that was really, I used to appreciate the, the critics who did come and, and were uh, respectful of that, because there were some that were. Um, and I really think that I guess I've come to the realization that it's not the most important thing about the play and about my work in it. So I don't worry about it so much. Could I just say one thing about that in terms of, uh, I think this is a somewhat special case, unlike a mystery or something where you'd be revealing the ending, because the play is based on uh, 
or does refer to a real-life situation, which was widely reported. So in a way, it's hard, it's, it's almost inescapable to refer to that. And I think, too, uh, B.D.'s point is, and I think this frankly was missed by some of the critics, is, is what the author has done with this story and the way the author has related it to Madame Butterfly and a lot of perceptions that is crucial. And that is not revealed when you reveal what, what happens right. to B.D.'s character in the thing. But I think it's the reference to real life that, that prompted a lot of that rather than uh, really being anxious to give away the plot. I did quite a lot of press interviews down in Washington uh, during our tryout period, and for the first f several of them, I was, it was a matter of policy. I was trying to withhold the information, and a friend of mine told me that he found it hilarious watching <laughs> me try to explain this play <laughs> without telling the premise. <laughs> I was really uh, completely tongue-tied practically the whole time. It was such a relief to finally say, she's a man. <laughs> <laughs> Also, as an actor, I, I think I should add that uh, if, if, now that I uh, am more relaxed about it, I do have a, a, a still an excitement when there are people that do come totally naive to what the play is about and are caught up in it. There, there, and if I've always maintained that, and still do maintain that, if there's just one person that doesn't know in a, in a room full of 1,100 people, it's very, very satisfying for me. Is that your so, thrust? That one person that we... Yeah, kind of. It kind of is. I, I like to think that 1,100 people are that one person, and, and I can... I can... Uh, it, it just is... It makes it really fun for me. Well, here I am again having to say thank you very much and interrupt this wonderful panel and bring it to a close. It's the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre and it's but one of the year-round programs of the American Theatre Wing. Today's panel was on the performance, and as you have heard, the knowledge and the sharing of knowledge and the sharing of ideas and the sharing of ideals are extraordinary. And I am always grateful when the American Theatre Wing calls on these wonderful people, this wonderful talent, and they say, yes, we'll do it for the wing, and it's, it's a wonderful thing to be part of an organization that has that kind of, of reliance and that kind of prestige. I come to the wing with a long, long line of wonderful people that were presidents of it, so it is not me, it is the wing, the organization that created the Tony Awards. We do a series of seminars at this particular time, and the next one will be on the play script, the play script and director and its relation to each other. And then the next one will be on the production. Everything that goes into making the show that you see when you buy a ticket to go to the theater. All the nitty-gritty, the, from the producer getting the first script to the press agent saying, how are we going to merchandise this show? In the case of today's panel, case of today's show, there was no, no need to worry about how to merchandise a show. It really has been a wonderfully exciting show. M. Butterfly will be the production, and everybody is looking forward to seeing how it all came about and everybody's role in it. Thank you for being here. This is coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, located on 42nd Street, the heart of the theater.